completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Do you ever think about what it takes to get food to your office? Or to every office in the country? Well, Stefania Mallet and her co-founder did. The result was Easy Cater, a nationwide marketplace of caterers and companies. A company that deals with food at work might seem like a niche. Turns out, it's a $21 billion niche. Today, you'll hear about the road that brought Stefania to Easy Cater and how she learned, in her words, to pay attention when market research smacks you in the face. I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and this is The Growth Show. All right, so let's start off with the basics and have you tell me about EasyCater. Great. EasyCater is a marketplace that makes it easy for anybody who wants to buy food for a business meeting to find food anywhere in the United States. Come to our website, enter an address anywhere in the United States, and we will show you restaurants and caterers that will deliver food to that address. We show you all the details of the menus. We show you all the details of all the pricing. It's all the same pricing as if you dealt with those people directly, except you can do it in your bunny slippers at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Once you place the order, you're done. We take care of everything from there. We make sure it happens. We troubleshoot if there's any problems, and all your receipts are in one beautiful place. People love using EasyCater, love using EasyCater. We have passionately uh, supportive users. So uh, tell me some of those user stories of you, as you've heard from people. Uh, do you have a, a customer who talks about ordering in their bunny slippers? Yes. Gosh, we have all kinds of customer stories like that. We have one. This is one of my favorite stories. Um, we saw an order arrive for lunch on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday for a whole week for an address in Charlotte, North Carolina. And the phone number of the person who placed the order was a Los Angeles number. I wasn't sure if I wasn't being punked. Huh. So we called up the Los Angeles number and said, so, you know, we're happy to help you. Just had a couple questions. And it turned out this was an admin for an office in Los Angeles. She said, yeah, my boss lost a bet to the boss of the Charlotte office. <laughs> And so now we have to feed them every day for a week. <laughs> That's amazing. What was and the bet? Do you know? I don't know. We didn't ask what the bet was. We weren't sure that there was something about the way she said it that made us think we should probably not ask. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but then she said, so guess whose job it was to find food for five days a week in a town that I'm thousands of miles away from. And I said, well, I hope we helped you. And she said, yeah, don't tell my boss. He thinks I took all afternoon to do this. It only took me a half an hour once I found you guys. So we felt pretty good about that. But that's actually an interesting differentiator for you guys because there aren't many other ways you could do that. I mean, you'd have to call around you to... You Google and call and Google and call and Google and call. And it's, it takes you a long time. One of the best training uh, exercises that we give to our salespeople who outbound reach to prospective customers is we have them order food not using EasyCater. Hmm. And we say, there's the web, there's your phone, make it happen. And they come away sweating bullets. You know, hours later, they're like, oh my God, 
it's easy caters so much easier. Yeah. So this is not your first time as a CEO role. This is not your first time as a co-founder. Right. Uh, you have a long history of, of founding businesses. Can you tell me a little bit about some of those companies and what you learned from them? Sure. So the first company was one where I learned that I really am a good operating executive and I am not the idea person. Hmm. I can take an idea and flesh it out, but... I don't start with the germ. I'm not the person who has the germ of the idea. And it, but I had a very good combination of the, the idea people and me fleshing it out from there. The second company was one where we were convinced we saw a need. We worked really hard to educate the world on that need, but it was a push strategy all the time. We just kept having mm -hmm. to push our, our way into customers, and they would say, huh, I guess that's true. Okay, that's kind of interesting. But they weren't looking for the solution. Yeah. And that company was not successful. Again, it was not my idea, but I helped flesh the company out. We certainly had devotees. We had people who said, wow, that is cool. Mm -hmm. But the majority of our customers said, huh, okay. But they didn't jump on it like a goose on a June bug. Yeah. And so... What we did discover there, though, was thousands of people asking us for help making food appear in support of business meetings. And so when we shut that one down, that company we had to end because we ran out of cash, our investors turned away from us before we had achieved profitability, mm -hmm. and we couldn't find new investors, we shut that business down and we started up this one, the one that thousands of people had asked us for help with. Yeah. And we said, that seems like good market research. So in the okay, so you're in the darkness before you see the light of the new yeah. company, and you cared about this company that you cared were, intensely. Yeah. So what is that like to be in that moment before you sort of see where history is going to lead you, when you have sure. to make that decision to to shut something down that you once believed in? Sure. So there were a couple of compelling moments that I won't forget. I think ever. It's not like it was news that we were getting into trouble. We knew this. We had been struggling for money and struggling for customer traction for years. And we'd always gotten enough money to continue and enough customer traction to believe that we had something there. And mm -hmm. we just kept working through it. And we were very transparent. Everybody in the company knew what the story was. So the time where finally it really ended, everybody knew that on a certain Tuesday we were either going to get a yes from a big funder or not. And we didn't get the yes. And so I pulled everybody together and I said, okay, guys, we're at the end of the road. I have enough money squirreled away to pay everybody through Friday. Mm. But literally, that's it. So if you want to all pack up and go home, you can. And to a person, they said, we're not leaving until we've told the customers about this. We have to transition out. We have wow. to help our people. We, have, yeah. we can't just walk away. I know I almost cried. I was it just like, gave me goosebumps. I, I said, well, I, that's fantastic. <laughs> and they said, we're going we're gonna to transition it out nicely. We're going to talk to all the customers. We're, we're going to make it go, like, go down with grace. And I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And they did. They all came to work the next day. They all did everything, like smart, reasonable, intelligent, thoughtful, helpful things to package the company up well and close it down nicely. It was fantastic. The other thing was I called all of our investors 
again, it wasn't a surprise to them. They knew how close we had been to mm-hmm. the edge of to the edge of the cliff, and I called them and I said, "Well, we fell off the cliff. I'm sorry, I lost all your money." And the fourth or fifth guy whom I reached was an angel investor who said, "Quote, that's okay, Stefania. That's how the game is played." I'll invest in whatever else you and your co-founder want to do. He believed and in you guys. And at that moment, I felt this huge weight lift off me, which I didn't even know I was carrying that weight, but I felt this weight lift off me because he, at that moment, had reminded me that entrepreneurship is an uncertain game and that sometimes you lose yeah. and sometimes you win. And he was a serial entrepreneur himself and a serial investor, an angel investor in multiple things. And he reminded me that this was not failure. This was not the end. And I am not often struck silent. I, people who know me know that I'm always got something to, I've always got something to say. But I was struck silent by this and I felt the weight coming off me. And in that silence, he said, I'll invest in whatever you and Briscoe Rogers, my co-founder, do next. What is that, by the way? Immediately wanting the next idea. Oh, my God. This is what you always hear, that people would rather invest in an A team with a B idea than a B team with an A idea, that the people matter so much. And I realized that we, for all that we had not succeeded with this company, we had done a damn good job, good enough, that people wanted to invest in us again. And good enough that our employees were so committed to this idea that they didn't just walk out the door. Yeah. I was really proud. I was really proud of the people. I was really proud of what we had accomplished. We had a third of our potential market using us at least a little bit. Yeah. But we hadn't achieved profitability. I learned something else, too, from that. One of our investors, when I said with great bitterness, how come we couldn't raise money from you guys, he said, look, not every good business is also a good investment. There are plenty of companies, uh, dry cleaners, where it's not a good investment. You're not going to get 10x your money back, but it can be a very nice business and it can keep a family going really well. This business, that business which we had to shut down, would have taken an awful lot of investment. It would have taken a long time. I think it would have ended up successful, but for an investor who wants within a certain window of time a certain degree of return we were not a good investment yeah how do you think they tell the difference so, between those two yeah if i was good at that I'd be a <laughs> you'd be an investor <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean the one it is not coincidence that the company that we started because thousands of people had asked us to help them find food for business meetings that that company is the most successful company that I have personally started. Yeah. Right? So market research, smacking you in the face. Pay attention. Yeah. So that's so actually that's a great pivot. Let's let's talk about the the birth of that idea and, and how it gained traction. It does seem like the problem was really clear, really evident. The problem was really evident. We had understood something about it from working with regional online food ordering portals whom we had tried to enlist so that they would help our customers the ones with these thousands of requests we were dealing with all the regional players and we came to understand from them that this is a business that's got legs and that if you could figure out how to be national you would be in a much much stronger position because then you would cover 
at first we were only focused on salespeople who need to make food appear for sales calls. And you would cover everybody's territory no matter how far flung their customers or prospects might be. Oh, that's if we had national coverage, yeah. we would be able to help everybody no matter what their territory was. And we came to understand that it's hard to get to be national. We figured it out. No one else has figured it out. <laughs> what we did was legal, ethical, and moral, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> yeah, that was going to be my next question. Because <laughs> it's our secret sauce. <laughs> and so we are national. We, it took us a couple of years to get there. But once we got there, boy, our business took off. Well, because that, yeah. that then becomes your massive differentiator. I it was mean, a massive differentiator. That's what enables somebody from L.A., to cover a bet that they made in Carolina. In, in North Carolina. Yeah. It's what allows somebody who's used us for their territory and then quits their job and goes to another company and gets a different territory to say, well, that was so cool back in my old company. I'm taking the tool with me. We have retention for life from our customers. Yeah. They move from company to company. Admins who use us to order food in for their offices or for any meetings that their management team or anybody might host at their offices... They leave the company, they go and be an admin somewhere else, they bring Easy Cater with them. Mm -hmm. That is a huge differentiator. And it it's also makes our word of mouth work really well. I'm at Thanksgiving talking to my brother-in-law who is in another, another part of the country. We only get together at Thanksgiving. I say, oh my God, there's this fabulous tool. Yeah. My brother-in-law says, I don't think so, and gets online and goes, oh wow, they work in my neighborhood too. Mm -hmm. It works really well. So... You've talked about the the strong side of um, marketplaces and and retention being number one among them, but I think I would imagine the hardest part is how do you get that supply and demand right, yeah, um, so that people have that strong first experience. It's a two sided problem. We love each side of our marketplace equally. <laughs> I mean, the caterers think that we are that they are number one in our hearts, and the customers think they are number one in our hearts, and that's kind of true. <laughs> uh, my head of customer service has four kids, and he says his kids will ask him, Dad, am I your favorite? And his answer is always, you're in the top four. There we go. <laughs> and so I feel that way about caterers and customers. I'm like, you're my top two favorite segments. <laughs> but it's a hard problem. You have a chicken and egg problem. Do you sign up a lot of supply and then they're like, well, where are my customers? Or do you bring in a lot of the demand? And then the demand says there's not enough supply to buy. You know, which goes first? We solved that problem the day we figured out how to go national, how to sign up caterers en masse. Yeah. And that was a big deal for us because then it turns out, since we don't charge our restaurants anything unless they get an order, it doesn't. they don't pay a startup fee, they don't pay any ongoing marketing fees or ongoing retention fees or anything. They don't the barrier pay. is really low. The barrier is low, and that means that the worst thing that would happen to them was they didn't get an order. Mm -hmm. The worst thing that happens to them is nothing. It didn't. That was okay. So we could sign up caterers before we brought in customers. We figured out that the way we did the financials, it made it possible for us to have a surplus on the supply side. And that they would hang around and wait because it didn't hurt them to hang around and wait. It didn't cost them anything until we drove more demand to them. So there's not that pressure to get them the first deal with Oh, there is. We would, we would prefer to have so much demand that every caterer who signs up gets an order the first day. Many of our caterers do. Yeah. But not all. We huh. know that. Uh, we just keep working on the, the demand side. 
So there's there's giving equal attention to both of yeah. your children, and then there's also giving continuous attention as you scale and get bigger and bigger and have more people to and more companies to pay attention to. Correct. I I read once that you said that scaling is cringing, uh, <laughs> which I love and have thought about myself without having the right words to say it many many times. Are there some particularly cringeworthy moments that you can recall? Um, uh, in scaling Easy Cater? So my motto really is I need to be cringing three times a day per department or else I haven't let enough go hmm. or they're not doing enough. They should be you know, running forward so fast and so far that I'm cringing. Uh-huh. So you've got to make those sacrifices which goes back to that, that cringe moment of knowing what to let go and knowing... A, yeah. um, well, it's very simple. I think I have to let everything go. I think that the company will not scale unless I continually shed one more thing and one more thing and one more thing and give more people the pieces of my job to more and more different that's people. That's hard. It's hard, but it the cost of being a bottleneck is much greater than the cost of cringing. I'm too much of a, a thinker, a systems thinker, to accept a bottleneck. Mm-hmm. And so I push myself to give it away, give it to the next person who, by the way, is better at it than I am. Yeah. Because I'm a generalist. I'm the glue that pulls all the pieces together. I'm a generalist. I am not going to be as good a marketing person as our chief marketing officer or anybody in the marketing department. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be as good an engineer as our engineers. I'm not going to be as good at customer service as the people who do it all day, every day. And, and so it helps the company, and it helps me to give that up to somebody who's better at it than I am. Fair enough. Uh, so how has running a B2B company changed over the years since you've been operating? The, the web is a phenomenal thing. I built and sold software back when you had to call on individuals to convince them to buy this software. Yeah. And you, ha- you were limited by the realities of how fast can you travel and how many times can you dial the phone mm-hmm. and how many humans can you get out there. The web is the most phenomenal salesperson there is. You can reach tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of customers every single day with not leaving your office. Yeah. One person. So the multiplier effect of having the web is quite dramatic. Yeah. That has made a big change. If you told people that you went from $100 to $10,000 of revenue overnight in olden times, times. they would think you were lying, this was not true, it was not possible. I mean, it wasn't possible to have that magnitude of change. Yeah. But on the web, you can do that. It's as though you had thousands and thousands of salespeople working for you. Yeah. All right, so technology aside, what else are you really excited about right now when it comes to the future of your role, the future of your company? I am seeing in action the line, culture beats strategy for breakfast. Mm -hmm. No, culture eats strategy for breakfast. You're in catering. You should have known that was eat. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I can't believe I made that mistake. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. I've always read that. I kind of thought it was true. I'm seeing how clearly it is true at Easy Cater. We have such a strong culture. We built it on purpose. It evolved. I can't say that I woke up one day saying, well, this will be the culture. It has evolved. And what I'm seeing is the strength 
of 230 people, where mm -hmm. once there were two people, I'm seeing that when each person is a steward of the culture, when each person owns their job and takes their job seriously and brings the same focus on excellence and on accomplishment that I have to it, that things get easier the bigger we get, not harder. People say, you know, the bigger you get, you're going to lose your focus, you're going to lose your culture, it's going to become, yeah. a, you know, an average kind of a place. I think the bigger we're getting, the stronger we're getting, and I worry less about that. And that's because you, every new person is bringing in a new set of skills, a new every perspective. Every new person picks up the culture strength, brings in their skills, strengthens us all for the new knowledge and the, and the unique twist they add to our culture strength. Mm. And it becomes more and more diverse at the same time that we're still true to some central principles. So what's fascinating to me is um, you've noted that this is something that you're, you're sort of learning and experiencing now, but earlier in our conversation when you were talking about that moment when every member of the team at your past company decided to stay past the Friday, the, f the thing that immediately jumped in my head was that's a strong culture. It's a strong culture, yeah. We had a strong culture there. I think every time I've taken the next team some distance, built up the next department, started running my own companies, built the second company, built the third company. I'd like to think I've done it better. Yeah. I've learned from all the previous things. I think I'm better at it. And and I've the one thing I'm sure I'm better at is that I am more able to share power and to involve other people. I do mm -hmm. I'm better at cringing. <laughs> and so we have stronger and stronger teams in each of my companies, each of whom owns more of the outcomes than in previous companies. I'm giving more away in yeah. every company, and that, I think, strengthens us. So final question. Has running this company, Easy Cater, at all influenced your appetite? Have you become a bigger foodie? Are you more, <laughs> um, do you have, are you more particular about you know, who you order from and what you eat? Sure. It has definitely changed my approach to food but not necessarily in the way that you were talking about. It has not made me more fussy about food. It has actually made me more appreciative of the many, many different kinds of food that are available to buy in this country. And it has made me understand that food snobbery is really, like most snobbery, a mistake. Mm. We curate for reliability. So we have caterers on our website who will bring you the most simple sandwiches with the lowest price point, all the way up to caterers who will deliver you hot meals with three-star kind of recipes and, and at a very high price point, yeah. and everything in between. What they all have in common is they're very reliable, because we know that in a business meeting, you don't want to be embarrassed by the food showing up late or the wrong food showing up or a piece is missing to the meal. And I have come to respect how hard it is to deliver good food of your type, whatever your flavor profile is, whatever the price point at which you operate is, for a caterer to deliver your, their food reliably, at the right temperature, under, the right, under any circumstances, I respect it all. And I've come to say, you know what? Everybody eats that stuff, no matter what it is. Somebody yeah. likes it. I, I, it's broken down all my snobbery. It is the, the essential fuel that kind of runs through any business. Catering is a tool. Food is a tool for businesses to run better. Mm -hmm. Sales calls, training events, celebrations, 
board meetings, food is a tool. It's a fascinating niche to find. It's a $21 billion niche. <laughs> Good point. It's a very cool niche. It we is use a, the word niche ourselves, but it is a $21 billion perhaps niche. Perhaps a conceptual niche, but, yes. but really a, a cavernous, cavernous, a cavernous one. Big business, yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been such a joy getting to know you. Well, thank you. It was great to be here. Thanks a lot. Thank you.